0: be a light.
1: Podcast on the Questionable Endeavor Network, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepecks, the suplex throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. First off, a big thank you to William Rankin for joining the show last time out. He did a fantastic job, so please be sure to go back and listen to episode number 23 if you haven't already. And, of course, you can catch William Rankin and two-time guest co-host Martin Dixon on the New Blood Rising podcast, where they are currently recapping every single ECW pay-per-view. Definitely be sure to check that out. And I'd also like to give one more quick thank you to the fans of the Raw Attitude Podcast for helping us set a new record for the highest number of plays in one month. October marked the fifth straight month that we have set a new listenership record, and we are now over 3,000 total plays, and that is all thanks to you, the fans, so I hope you continue to stick with us. And with that being said, let's get down to business. But before we dive into Raw, there's also a pay-per-view to recap. Yes, that's right, Over the Edge took place on Sunday, May 31st, 1998, at the Wisconsin Center Arena in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 9,822 fans attended the event in person, and an additional 211,000 people watched at home. Considering that the previous month's Unforgiven show garnered 309,000 buys, that's a pretty good size drop. Additionally, WCW's Slamboree pay-per-view, which aired two weeks before Over the Edge, actually did 275,000 buys, beating the WWF by almost 65,000 buys this month. Clearly, the fans really wanted to see that Bischoff versus Vince match. Also, as a quick side note, Ken Shamrock's intense, screamy face is plastered all over the poster for Over the Edge, but he doesn't appear on the show at all. Go figure. Our opening contest was LOD2000, accompanied by Sonny and Puke, versus Skull and 8-Ball, accompanied by Chains. First of all, this match went for 10 minutes, so in case you're wondering whether or not to seek it out, there you go. Second, the finish of the match appeared to be somewhat botched. The DOA attempted their twin magic routine, and Animal then seemed to just wander around the ring for a moment, before looking in Chains' direction and kicking the bottom rope. Meanwhile, Puke jumped up on the ring apron and clotheslined 8-Ball, and Animal then followed that up with a power slam to score the 3-count. Much like Val this feud needs to be blown off. But sadly, we have much more to go. After that, your WWF Intercontinental Champion, The Rock, came to the ring unannounced solely to belittle the fans of Milwaukee, a.k.a. the beer capital of America. The Rock says he doesn't drink much beer himself, but if he had to live in this city and constantly be surrounded by their women, he would probably be drinking non-stop. Pretty amusing stuff. However, Farouk then ran down to the ring to defend the honor of the good people of Wisconsin. He got the better of The Rock, then slid a chair into the ring to do some further damage. Farouk put the chair on the canvas and set Rock up for a pile driver, but we got a pretty funny botch as Farouk accidentally kicked the chair out from under himself when he picked Rock up, so the chair completely slid away from them. Amusingly, they still went through with the pre-planned injury angle, as Jim Ross said, I think The Rock's head bounced right off the steel chair, even though it clearly did not. The rest of the Nation of Domination then ran out from backstage to chase Farouk away, and they yelled for a doctor to come to ringside. Sure enough, some paramedics come to the ring, put the Rock in a neck brace, and cart him away on a stretcher. Farouk certainly seems to have gotten some revenge on his former stablemate, but it appears that the advertised Rock-Farouk intercontinental title match may now be in jeopardy. Our next match was Jeff Jarrett versus Steve Blackman. You may recall that Double J is the only person in the WWF who has actually scored a pinfall victory over Blackman up to this point, so the Lethal Weapon is looking to avenge that loss. This was an okay match, which also got about 10 minutes of ring time. The match ended when Blackman went to the top rope, but my favorite character, Tennessee Lee, whacked him with his own kendo stick behind the referee's back, which allowed Jarrett to score his second pinfall victory over Blackman. This is one of those classic wrestling logic moments. The referee sees Blackman climb to the top rope. He then turns his back on Blackman to check on Jarrett. When he turns around, he sees that Blackman has now seemingly fallen to the mat for no reason, but he just says, Eh, he must have tripped, and counts the pinfall anyway. And you wonder why referees get a bad rap. Up next, we had Marvelous Mark Merrow taking on Sable's mystery wrestler. Last week on Raw, you may recall that Merrow challenged Sable to find someone to represent her in a match. If her wrestler wins, Marrow will tear up Sable's managerial contract, but if Marrow wins, Sable will have to leave the WWF forever. Hilariously, Jim Ross legitimately speculates that Sable's representative will be... The Undertaker. Now, I know that may seem far-fetched, but when you see which match Taker interrupts on Raw, it may not actually seem quite as unlikely. As it turns out, the person who Sable has picked to wrestle Marrow tonight will be... Sable! Yes, that's right. Sable says she doesn't need any man to fight her battles, and if anyone is going to win her freedom for her, it's going to be her. Surprisingly, Mero actually seems genuinely touched by this gesture. He says that this business has ruined their relationship, and he has realized the error of his ways, so he asks for the timekeeper to ring the bell, and then he lays down on the mat. Sure enough, Sable proceeds to pin Mero, but then he reverses it into a pin of his own and scores the three count. He then celebrates as though he just won the Super Bowl, and I have to admit, I thought this was pretty funny. To add further insult, he grabs the mic and tells her to get the hell out of the WWF and sings that na-na-na-hey-hey-goodbye nah, nah, hey, song to her as she solemnly walks backstage, presumably for the last time ever. Michael Cole interviews her once she comes through the curtain. She thanks the fans for their support and says goodbye all while trying to do some borderline tearful acting, the key word there being trying. My quick take on this, Sable saying that she doesn't need a man to fight for her could, I suppose, be considered a bit of a female empowerment moment, but then she's immediately booked to lose and look pretty foolish in the process. Sounds about right for a Vince Russo angle. Sable, you're gonna stick up for yourself, but then you're gonna lose anyway, because you're a woman, dum-dum. But anyway, get one last good look at Sable, folks, because this is definitively Absolutely, 100%, the last time you will ever see her in the WWF. Our next contest was a bonus 3-on-2 handicap match, Kai Entai versus Bradshaw and Taka Michinoku. Apparently, the theme of tonight's show is that every match must last for almost exactly 10 minutes, because that is what happens here as well. However, I can't complain too much, except for the fact that Bradshaw pretty much no-sold all of Kai Entai's offense, because this was actually a pretty solid match, It ended when Teo hit Taka with a chokeslam, then Togo came off the top rope to hit his very impressive diving senton bomb, and that was enough to score the three count. And just remember, folks, every episode of this podcast is one episode closer to that promo by Yamaguchi-san. I'm already starting the countdown. Up next, the scheduled Intercontinental title match is apparently still on. Farouk is already in the ring, and Commissioner Slaughter then joins him. He grabs a mic and says that The Rock must defend his title or he will be stripped of the belt. Well, okay, he had a little trouble saying that.
2: So as the commissioner of the World Wrestling Federation, I am ordering
0: you to come out here now within 10 seconds, or else I will represent and give Mr. Farouk
1: First of all, why is Slaughter rewarding Farouk for trying to cripple The Rock earlier tonight? Shouldn't he be siding with The Rock since Farouk attacked him for no reason whatsoever? Again, I realize I'm not supposed to look for logic in wrestling, but come on. Anyway, The Rock does indeed emerge from backstage, still wearing his neck brace, and once again, Farouk proceeds to jump him before the bell rings. Who is the face and who is the heel here again? Not only that, but Farouk immediately rips Rock's neck brace right off of him, and I'm starting to feel a bit sorry for Rocky here, even though he's a bit of a dick. A few minutes in, Farouk hits Rock with a spine buster, but then we get yet another botch on this show, as Farouk attempts to pin Rock too early before Rock can get into position, so they can clearly be seen talking to each other as Rock has to roll over closer to the ropes. Sure enough, after that brief delay, Farouk pins him, and Rock manages to get his foot on the bottom rope. But referee Tim White counts to three anyway. Because of the confusion, that pinfall got almost zero reaction from the crowd. To make matters even worse, as soon as Tim White counts to three, Rock removes his foot from the bottom rope, and when White looks in Rock's direction, he tells Farouk that Rock's foot was on the bottom rope, even though he never actually saw Rock's foot on the rope. You want to talk about a clusterfuck? Go back and check that one out. In fact, just take a listen to how this awkwardness went down.
0: Farouk, about 40 years old, NJR. Farouk reversed, and then Spinebuster... Looks like Peruk is beginning to be fatigued, as is the Rock here. The Rock's not fatigued; he just injured. Peruk hooking the near leg. No, foot was under oh, right the You idiot! We got a three count. No, the foot we was got on no bail, We right. got a three count. Foot was on the right. Ray Charles, could see that.
1: The match then ended shortly thereafter when Farouk started beating on Rock in the corner, but Rock managed to take him down and pin him with both of his feet on the ropes for leverage, enabling him to retain his Intercontinental Championship. And of course, as soon as the match ends, that good guy Farouk then proceeds to hit Rock with two more pile drivers, so yes, he really is attempting to cripple him. Mercifully, the Nation of Domination runs out to the ring and starts beating on Farouk, but D-Generation X soon follows after them to make the save. I would say to seek this match out only if you're a fan of horrendously awkward botches, and judging by the fact that there are now more than 325 botchamanias, apparently that would be a large portion of the wrestling audience. Next up was our mask versus mask match, Kane versus Vader. I must say I was pretty excited for this one, not for the match itself, but rather for Vader's post-match promo, which William Rankin and I discussed on the previous episode of this podcast, but more on that in a moment. You may recall that Kane and Vader fought back at February's No Way Out of Texas pay-per-view, where Kane picked up the victory, and then, after the match, he smashed Vader in the head with a comically large wrench, resulting in the Mastodon being out of action for several months. Vader returned at last month's Unforgiven pay-per-view and interfered in the Undertaker-Kane Inferno match, and now he is out for revenge in a mask-versus-mask match at this pay-per-view. If you're considering going out of your way to watch this one, Uh, you should probably rethink that idea because it was not that great. Toward the end of the match, Vader actually brought back that same ridiculously large wrench from a few months ago and hit Kane with it several times in the stomach and back while the referee was distracted, but in true 1998 Kane fashion, the Big Red Machine was such a monster that he barely even sold it. Back in the ring, we got one truly amazing spot as Vader actually went for a moonsault, or as I refer to it, the 450 pound splash, but Kane moved out of the way. He then picked up Vader and hit him with a jumping tombstone, which was also incredibly impressive, and that was enough to pick up the three count. On commentary, Jerry Lawler then exclaimed, Take off the mask! Let's see what Vader looks like! Apparently the King must have the memory of a goldfish, because I'm pretty sure Vader has unmasked many times during his WWF run, but sure enough, Kane does indeed remove Vader's mask. Things then get strangely comical as Paul Bearer puts the mask on and yells, It's time! It's time! It's Paul Bearer time! Okay, that was pretty awesome. Kane and Paul Vader then head backstage, leaving the real Vader alone in the ring. Once he exits, Michael Cole walks up to him to get his thoughts on the match, and, as promised, here is the amazing soundbite Vader provides, which William Rankin and I have both been looking forward to. Vader! Vader! Vader, you wanted revenge tonight, but it didn't happen. What happened out
0: there? Man, a man usually don't have any excuses. I came here tonight to compete. And I got my butt whipped.
2: I made the biggest mistake of my life. A train. Look at me. I'm so big.
1: And for the record, yes, the WWE Network leaves the clip uncensored. Good for them. Here's what confuses me about this promo, though. Vader says he trained hard and that he's so big, and he then proceeds to flex to show off his muscles, but a few seconds later, he then says he's a big fat piece of shit. So which is it, man? Are you jacked or are you fat? Pick a side and stick with it. Also, he says he, quote, made the biggest mistake of his life, but he doesn't specify what that mistake actually is. I'm not sure if he's referring to picking a fight with Kane or perhaps just joining the WWF in general. Quite a few questions left unanswered. But the moral of the story is this. Vader is a big fat piece of shit. No, no, sorry, sorry. No, the moral of the story is that Vader time may now be over. Also, as a quick side note, this marks the second straight pay-per-view where a wrestler has dropped the S-bomb in a post-match interview with Michael Cole, so clearly, Cole really brings out the worst in everyone.
0: Owen, another loss to Triple H. Another loss to Triple H. It looks like DX has your number. You want to know what I gotta say? Enough is enough. I've had it up to here. This bullshit has got to stop. Enough is enough, and it's going to stop. Things are going to have
1: to change around here. And speaking of the Owen Hart-Triple H rivalry, our next match is Nation of Domination members Owen, D'Lo Brown, and Kama Mustafa, who is now being referred to as the Godfather versus D-Generation X members, Triple H, and the New Age Outlaws. Surprisingly, this six-man tag match actually got almost 18 minutes of ring time. The match was pretty solid, sadly nothing special given the fact that this rivalry is retroactively looked upon in such high regard. The match eventually devolved into a bit of a schmoz, with China attempting to interfere before Mark Henry stopped her. Or, as Jim Ross referred to it,
0: Mark Henry just jerked China off the
1: The referee then got distracted by the antics outside the ring, which enabled Triple H and Billy Gunn to hit D-Lo with a spike pile driver onto Hunter's European title. Triple H then went to cover D'Lo, but Owen snuck back into the ring, picked up Hunter, and in a pretty awesome spot, Owen actually pedigreed Triple H face first onto the European title. The referee then rolled back into the ring and counted the pinfall, giving the victory to the Nation of Domination. At long last, after almost six months of Hunter getting the better of him, Owen Hart finally scores a pinfall victory over Triple H, albeit in a mostly meaningless throwaway match. Also, kudos to Triple H for really selling that final spot, as X-Pac and China had to help him walk backstage because he was so staggered by the pedigree onto the belt. Good stuff. And now, it's time for your main event, and holy shit, what a main event this is. WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Dude Love with guest referee Vince McMahon, guest ring announcer Pat Patterson, and guest timekeeper Gerald Briscoe. Also, you may remember that Stone Cold forced Vince to accept one more stipulation last week on Raw. If any wrestler wants to come to ringside to act as a special enforcer to ensure that Vince calls the match right down the middle, then someone backstage can volunteer for the position. Right off the bat, we get a great moment as Howard Frankel is forced to read off about 20 note cards as he lists all of Pat Patterson's accolades, and Patterson then takes over the ring announcing duties himself. He introduces us to Gerald Briscoe, who stops to pose in front of a smashed-up car in the aisleway, which has the phone number for the Briscoe Brothers body shop. Pretty funny. Patterson then proceeds to read off another lengthy list of accolades as Vince McMahon saunters to the ring. I will also note that this crowd really seems to hate Vince, as you can hear them yelling profanities at him on his way down the aisle, and several fans are even throwing trash at him. I would say some of those fans may be intoxicated, but obviously the people of Milwaukee are not known for being drunks. Patterson then introduces us to Dude Love, who is wearing a suit coat over his ring gear. In a bit of an eerie moment, Jim Ross says Foley is wearing a blue blazer, but he is not THE blue blazer, which is a bit of a creepy line because we know what happens at Over the Edge one year from now. But on a lighter note, when it comes time for Patterson to introduce Stone Cold, he gets in another amusing line when he says that he refuses to introduce a bum so he doesn't bother with the introduction. Funny stuff. Of course, that lack of an intro does nothing to dampen Stone Cold's reaction, as the crowd absolutely explodes when Austin's music hits. It really is something to see the reactions he was getting around this time, because these fans go absolutely insane when he comes to the ring. Austin hands the title to Vince, who then puts a hand in the air as if he's about to signal to Briscoe to ring the bell, but before he can do so, the Undertaker's music hits. Yes, it appears that Taker has answered the call to be the guest enforcer for this match, and I will note that he also gets a huge reaction, although not quite as big as Austin's. And now it's time for the match to finally begin. Early on, Dude Love hit Austin with a shoulder block and attempted to pin him, and Vince seemed to make a pretty fast count, but Austin kicked out. Austin then put Dude in a headlock and attempted to pin him, but Vince then responded with a very slow count. The angry crowd then proceeded to chant, (sighs) Vince is gay, as Jim Ross tried to cover for them by saying that they were actually chanting, Vince is dead. Nice try, JR. A few seconds later, Austin kicks dude in the stomach, and we can see that Foley's fake teeth then fly right out of his mouth. Austin notices this, so he proceeds to stomp on them as Vince asks him to reconsider. After some back-and-forth brawling, Dude managed to get the advantage by putting Austin in the mandible claw, but Austin reversed it by throwing Dude into the ropes, where Foley then did the hangman spot, and yes, that is the exact same spot, which resulted in him losing an ear four years prior. I guess he wasn't happy with losing just one. It seems he wants to even things out. Both men then brawled to the outside, with Dude throwing Austin over the announce table. Pat Patterson then grabbed a mic and said there are now no disqualifications in the match, to which an irate Jim Ross then yelled, Since when? Since now? That's not right. Foley then took advantage of this new stipulation by choking Austin with a lengthy piece of cable. However, Austin reversed this by whipping Foley toward the timekeeper's section, resulting in a collision with Gerald Briscoe, which knocked him to the ground. The carnage then continued as Austin put Dude on the barricade and clotheslined him off of it, resulting in Dude taking a neck-first bump directly onto the concrete. Holy foley. Eventually, Dude managed to regain the momentum when he hit Austin with a neckbreaker in the aisleway, and at this point, Vince ran over to Patterson to ask him to make another announcement. This match is now Falls Count Anywhere. JR becomes even more livid as Vince attempts to count the pinfall outside the ring, but Austin kicks out at two. Both men continued brawling up the aisle near where the smashed-up cars were located, Austin charged at Dude, but in a very nice spot, Dude backdropped Austin onto the hood of the car, with Austin's foot smacking the windshield and smashing it. In what is likely a first for the company, Dude actually attempted to pin Austin on the hood of the car, but again, he only got a two count. I will also note that Vince is actually counting the pinfalls at a normal pace at this point, because The Undertaker is continuously following him around to make sure he doesn't pull a fast count. Austin and Dude then climbed on top of another car, with Austin attempting a stunner. However, Foley pushed him off the car down to the floor. Not content with only one sick bump onto the concrete, Foley then did a jumping sunset flip from the car to the floor, but again, Austin kicked out. Foley then grabs a metal pipe and hits Austin in the back with it, and Austin then does a blade job for some reason, even though he was clearly not hit in the face. Very bizarre. With Austin on the ground, Foley climbed to the roof of a car and attempted an elbow drop, but Austin moved out of the way, and yes, that would be concrete bump number three for Foley in this match. Both men then make their way back to the ring, with Foley using that classic heel maneuver of removing the turnbuckle pad, and he then throws the bloody Austin face-first into the exposed steel on three separate occasions. Again, however, it was still not enough to keep Stone Cold down for a three-count. The frustrated Foley then asked Patterson for a chair, and he hit Austin in the back with it. He then gave Stone Cold a double-arm DDT directly onto the chair, but still Austin kicked out. Foley then charged at Austin with the chair, but Stone Cold kicked it right back into his face. Austin picked up the chair and sold it as though he was still woozy, which resulted in an amusing spot where he got to his feet and accidentally bounced the chair off the top rope, which then proceeded to spring back and hit him in his own face. However, he didn't let that slip up bother him because he then clobbered dude in the head with an absolutely sick chair shot, but Vince refused to count the pinfall. Austin stood up and got in Vince's face, which allowed Foley to grab the chair and sneak up on him. However, when Foley went to swing the chair at Austin, he ducked out of the way and Foley accidentally clobbered Vince right in the head with another vicious chair shot which knocked the boss unconscious and caused the crowd to go absolutely ape shit. Austin then hit Foley with a stunner and went to cover him, but there was no referee to make the pinfall. After a few seconds, backup referee Mike Keota ran to ringside to count the pinfall himself, but Pat Patterson pulled Keota out of the ring before he could count to three. Dude Love then put the mandible claw on Austin, and Patterson attempted to count the pinfall himself, but the undertaker dragged Patterson out of the ring picked him up by the throat, and choke slammed him right through the announce table. Fucking awesome spot, and Patterson got amazing height on it for a guy who was 57 years old at this point. Gerald Briscoe then attempted to count the pinfall as well, but he was met with the same fate as Taker also dragged him out of the ring and choke slammed him through the other announce table, albeit with much less height than Patterson just got. Dude Love then put the mandible claw back on Austin, but Stone Cold reversed it by kicking Foley in the balls, then hitting him with a stunner. With Vince still face down on the mat, Austin dragged him over and picked up his limp hand, making the unconscious Vince count the pinfall and giving Stone Cold the victory and the successful title retention at a time of roughly 22 minutes and 30 seconds. Austin celebrates in the ring for a while before locking eyes with The Undertaker. They stare each other down a bit before Taker walks backstage, but it seems as though the dead man may have an interest in Stone Cold's WWF title. We go off the air with Austin climbing on top of one of the cars and holding his belt in the air, and that was Over the Edge 1998. Let me just say that I don't think one match can save an entire pay-per-view, but Austin, Foley, the corporation, and Taker damn sure tried. This is basically 20 minutes of overbooked brawling, but it's incredibly well done overbooked brawling. If you go back and watch this match and see how the crowd was hanging on every move and action by the end of it, you'll know what I mean. And again, kudos to Mick Foley for taking sick bump after sick bump purely to ramp up the intensity of the match. I don't think we're going to see Mick doing anything insane like that again. Until the next pay-per-view. Stay tuned for that. With that being said... Let's kick into Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, June 1st, 1998, and we are live from the Rosemont Horizon in Rosemont, Illinois. But basically everyone just says the arena is in Chicago because it's so close to the Windy City. Your attendance tonight is a hefty 16,157 fans. We open the show with, of all people, Vince McMahon narrating a montage of what happened the previous night at Over the Edge, with the boss saying that Austin achieved a, quote, shallow victory due to the incompetence of dude love hitting him with a chair. By the end of the montage, Vince is actually yelling and saying that Austin is the most undeserving and cold-hearted WWF champion of all time. Cue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. A few noteworthy signs tonight include Oh my god they killed the Spanish commentators Do you call this a match? You smell what Dusty's bookin'? Val squirt my sign? I like Polish sausage Shut up and wrestle Somebody out there's probably saying they know how to fall and Vince rapes goats. I posted a picture of those last two signs on our Twitter at Raw Attitude Pod if you want to take a look. Also, I'm pretty sure this is the third rape-related sign I've seen in the past 4 episodes of Raw. You may also recall I mentioned Bischoff rapes chickens, as well as a man holding up a sign which said "Sable raped me." Clearly, 1998 was not the most sensitive year. The show begins with Mick Foley sitting in a chair in the middle of the ring. He is not dressed as Dude Love, but rather in a button-down shirt, sweatpants, and sneakers. A large bruise can be seen under his left eye, presumably from the chair shot Stone Cold gave him during the match last night. He says he lost his teeth, and he lost the match, and he has to admit that Austin kicked his ass last night. He says he now realizes he has made some mistakes, particularly listening to the wrong people, and it's time for him to issue an apology. He requests that Vince McMahon come to the ring so he can tell him that he's sorry, and Vince does indeed walk down the aisle. Foley tells him the dude love has to be out of action for a while due to the injury he has sustained, but he hopes that he will still be the number one contender for the title once he's back to full health. Vince then proceeds to call Foley a, quote, miserable failure as a WWF superstar and a failure as a human being as well. He says if Foley is really serious about the apology, then he'll get down on his knees, presumably to grovel and not for something else. Foley asks Vince if he's joking, but Vince tells Foley that he is the joke. Mick refuses to beg because his children are watching, but Vince informs him that he's already an embarrassment to his family anyway. Vince says he didn't underestimate Stone Cold Steve Austin. He overestimated dude love. Foley then says he has to admit that when he accidentally nailed Vince in the head with that chair last night, it actually felt pretty damn good. From there, well... I'll just play Vince's response, because I think it's pretty awesome, and it may actually mark his official transition into crazy, evil owner Vince mode.
0: Why don't you do it again?
1: Uh Uh-oh.
0: Why don't you do it right now? There's the chair. Come on. Come on. Make my day, dude. Come on. life, come on, hit me with the bloody chair, come on, let me tell you something, the only reason I haven't fired Stone Cold Steve Austin because he makes me richer, you know what you make me, dude? All you do is make me sick. I'll tell you what. Your services here in the World Wrestling Federation are no longer required.
1: From there, they cue up the dude love music, and Vince mockingly dances in Foley's face as Mick just sits in the chair with his head hanging down. Really great stuff from both people here. Vince was completely hateable, and Mick always does a fantastic job of coming across as a sympathetic character when he tries to be. And now, just like Sable, it appears that Mick Foley is headed to the unemployment line, clearly, to never be seen again. We then go backstage where we see hometown heroes LOD2000, Draws, and Sonny in an alleyway grabbing several weapons in preparation for a Chicago street fight against the Disciples of Apocalypse. After a quick commercial break, Kevin Kelly is in the alley interviewing Darren Drazdov, who finally lives up to his nickname by vomiting, although there really wasn't all that much of it. Frankly, it was a pretty pathetic effort for someone who calls himself Puke. LOD2000 and Sonny talk for a bit, but then Chains pulls up on his motorcycle by himself. However, it was just a distraction as Skull and Eightball then jump LOD from behind, so apparently this match has now started. Essentially, this entire encounter is just six guys beating the crap out of each other with trash cans, chairs, metal pipes, street signs, and whatever else they can get their hands on as Sonny and a referee helplessly look on. Interestingly, there is also a moment where Hawk appears to throw a legitimate, non-gimmicked punch that nails Skull right in the face. If you're watching on the WWE Network, it happens about 15 minutes and 17 seconds into the episode, so go check it out because it seemed really goddamn stiff. Eventually, Hawk, Animal, Skull, and Eightball ball were all left laying on the ground, with only draws and chains still fighting. Soon after that, of all people, the Undertaker arrives at the arena and just happens to wander into this brawl. He's wearing sunglasses, a black shirt, and black sweatpants, and he is not at all in his dead man character, which is actually pretty weird to see during this time period. He then proceeds to beat up Chains himself, briefly giving us that long-awaited Undertaker versus Underfaker rematch from SummerSlam 1994. Amusingly, Chains actually falls down onto a large metal cart, and his momentum causes the cart to slide down the entrance ramp directly toward the cameraman, who then has to run for cover so he doesn't get crushed. Apparently, Taker's interference has resulted in the end of the match, but as far as I'm concerned, the real story here is that The Undertaker essentially just did a run-in during an LOD 2000 DOA match. Would not have guessed that. Taker then grabs a stagehand and asks where the hell Vince McMahon is, so apparently the dead man in sweatpants is on a mission. Our next match is Val Venus versus Poppy Chulo. Before the match, Val grabs Mike and cuts his first ever in-ring promo, which of course begins with Hello Ladies. He tells us that he isn't happy to see us, and that is a gun in his pocket, and he does not shoot any blanks. As far as his sexual innuendos go, don't worry folks, they will get a lot better. Val jumps Poppy Chulo at the start of the match, and he soon busts out a rather interesting move, a camel clutch where he gyrates his hips while sitting on his opponent's back. Probably a good thing that he didn't continue using that move. Another thing you may not recall that Val did early on in his WWF run was hold up an index finger and middle finger on each hand to form the initials VV. And again, probably a wise move to leave that one on the cutting room floor. Eventually, Val reversed a crucifix attempt into a slam, then followed that up with a money shot off the top rope to pick up the three count. One quick FYI here, Papi Chulo is actually Jose Saldana, who was recently competing in the company as Aguila before he changed his gimmick. This is his first and only Monday Night Raw match as Papi Chulo, but he will return to Raw roughly two years from now under yet another name, and this time he will have a certain red-headed female sidekick with him. Stay tuned for that. So anyway, Val then starts walking backstage, but no sooner does he get to the side of the ramp than the still-dressed-in-sweatpants Undertaker walks right by him and heads to the ring. We cut to a commercial, and when we return, we join Taker mid-sentence, as he has apparently been getting some mic time during the break. He tells us that Vince McMahon gave him an opportunity in the WWF eight years ago, but that was where the giving ended and the taking began. He then proceeds to cut a worked shoot interview on the boss, which goes on for about six minutes. So I'll trim this down a bit and play some of the more noteworthy moments for you.
2: Vince McMahon knew that I would be loyal for him giving me an opportunity. What I did for Vince McMahon was make his kingdom safe for himself and all of his hand-picked champions. The whole time, I knew that my time would come. And after I made his kingdom safe and there was no one left, well, then I got my opportunities. Oh, yes, I am a two-time former World Wrestling Federation champion. But as you all know, My tenure as champion, they didn't last very long. Why? Because Vince McMahon didn't want someone like The Undertaker representing the World Wrestling Federation. But I remained loyal. Even after all his hand-chosen favorites left town, For greener pastures, more money, I stayed here. I stayed by his side, thinking my time would come. How do I get repaid for that? He forces me to fight my own brother. He gives Paul Bear an open forum to discuss every tragic incident that ever happened in the life of The Undertaker. For what reason? Let me tell you why. Because it's all ratings. He put my family tragedy on the line for ratings. And even after all that, I never lost my smile. I kept on fighting. But you see, Vince, after years of mistreatment and after the last eight months of you throwing my family up in my face, I've had enough. Now it's time the Undertaker got what is rightfully his. I demand my shot at the World Wrestling Federation title. Now I've done enough talking. Now Vince McMahon, Mr. McMahon, whatever it is you'd like to be called, I think it's time you got your pencil neck geek ass out here and faced the Reapers.
1: Sure enough, a cocky Vince McMahon does indeed come to the ring to answer The Undertaker's challenge. Michael Cole actually makes the point that Vince's entire demeanor has seemingly changed, so I think we can safely say that their intention with the Vince character as of tonight is to turn him into the crazed sociopathic boss we all come to know and hate. Also, this is clearly a very Vince-centric episode of Raw tonight, since he has already done the opening narration and cut a promo on Mick Foley before this segment. However, with that being said, his response to The Undertaker is actually pretty awesome too, so I'm going to play that for you as well.
0: I'm going to give you the answer you're looking for in just a minute. But first you're going to hear me out. After all I've done for you... You chokeslammed me damn near to hell last week. You hovered over me like a giant vulture last night. And why? To get my attention? You got it. You got it. You want to talk about loyalty, dedication, honor, all those qualities you have. I'll grant you that. And I'm appreciative for it. But you know, let's face it. What have you done for Vince McMahon lately? How crazy! As far as your family's concerned, all your family problems. I got a question for you. Is Paul Bearer telling the truth when he says that your mother was a whore? Oh. Wait a minute. What you want it? the answer you want to be the number one contender you deserve to be the number one contender that's what you want that's what you'll get sure no problem you'll get it you'll get it if you defeat your opponent in this ring tonight You got what you wanted, okay? So whoever wins the match between you and your opponent will be the number one contender in this ring live tonight. So let's see what happens, Undertaker. Let's see what happens when you have to face your brother, Kane!
1: So there you have it, folks. Tonight on Free TV, we get the third ever match between The Undertaker and Kane with the number one contendership for Stone Cold Steve Austin's WWF title on the line. That's pretty damn awesome. But before we move on, I want to quickly sum up The Undertaker's quasi-shoot promo because it's a bit bizarre. Eight years ago, Vince gave The Undertaker a chance to be himself, so apparently that means he actually is an undead zombie in real life. Taker also sticks to the story that Kane is his real-life brother, and Vince is exploiting their strained relationship solely for ratings, but then he says that Vince has chosen several quote, hand-picked champions in the past, which would seem to be an obvious reference to the fact that none of this is actually real, because Vince gets to choose who holds the titles, but now, because Vince has manipulated Taker for too long, he wants a shot to be that hand-picked guy himself. Suddenly, I feel like I need a nap. However, logic aside, this was a very effective segment, and the crowd ate it up, so I'm looking forward to seeing how tonight's taker Kane main event plays out. Up next we get our JVC Kaboom of the week, which is taker choke Slamming Pat Patterson through the table from over the edge last night. However, the main reason I mention this is because the slogan for the JVC kaboom box is: "Strap it on." I have no reason why that would be the tagline for a boom box, but I am open to suggestions. After that, we get another commercial with Sable posing for a photographer, despite the fact that she is, uh, supposed to be fired. The New Age Outlaws and X-Pac then interrupt the photo shoot and spray both of them with super soakers because, well, I guess it's just because they're dicks. I would actually find it pretty amusing if this did turn out to be the final moment for Sable in the WWF, so I guess we'll see how that plays out. Our next match is a qualifying match for the 1998 King of the Ring tournament, The Lethal Weapon Steve Blackman versus Marvelous Mark Merrow. Before the match, Merrow grabs a mic and introduces us to his new valet, and I'm actually going to play this clip for you because I thought Merrow's wording was a bit unintentionally hilarious.
2: The lady I'm about to introduce is everything that Sable is not.
0: Not only does she know her place... Not only does she have a bod to die for, but she's black, she's beautiful, and she's mine.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, the sensuous, the sultry, Jacqueline!
1: Not only does she have a bod to die for, but she's black. Fair, fair point, I guess that's a fair point. But anyway, yes, this is Jacqueline's official debut in the WWF. Or is it? Well, actually, Jacqueline initially appeared in a vignette on Raw way back on November 15th, 1993, portraying Jeff Jarrett's assistant Winona before he debuted on television. In fact, you can actually go back and watch her segment on the WWE Network where she's helping Jeff Jarrett audition guitar players in his personal studio.
0: Stop it down, stop it down, stop it down. My gosh, that's awful. Cut, cut, cut. Winona, where do you find these pickers at? But, Double J, this is the 25th audition today. And they're all horrible. And, I, oh. But none of them as good as you, Double Well, You're certainly the they're not. You're exactly. The certainly not. I guess I got to play the piano. And I guess I got to play the drums. And I guess I'm the greatest singer in this town. Now it looks like I got to play the guitar. Oh, my God. You're gosh. the best, Double J.
1: To her credit, Jackie actually does get a fairly decent-sized pop when Merrow introduces her, which is likely because she'd previously had an on-camera role in WCW managing Kevin Sullivan and Harlem Heat. At a time when very few WCW personalities were making the switch to the WWF, even Jacqueline can get a pop for Jumping Ship. Before the match begins, we get our topical reference of the week, and this time it comes in sign form one day prior, Jerry Hallowell, a.k.a. Ginger Spice, had announced that she was leaving the Spice Girls, and one fan in the crowd capitalized on this by creating a sign which said, Sable will be the new fifth Spice Girl, Silicone Spice. Well played, sir. Anyway, as for the match itself, it was only a few minutes long, but Jacqueline immediately made her presence felt by distracting the referee. This enabled Merrow to sneak up behind Blackman and hit him with a low blow. However, instead of Merrow hitting Blackman with his TKO finisher, he instead went to the top rope and hit a very nice shooting star press instead, which he previously used when he was the babyface Wild Man Mark Merrow. And sure enough, that was enough to pick up the three count, handing Blackman only his third pinfall loss in the WWF, and advancing Merrow into the next round of the King of the Ring tournament. Up next, we get footage of Stone Cold Steve Austin appearing on the radio show Man Cow's Morning Madhouse, which featured a call-in from Vince McMahon who told Austin he was an embarrassment. Whether or not Stone Cold stuck around to help sing the Monday Morning Fart song, I do not know. Fun side note, two and a half years from now, Man Cow will actually defeat Jimmy Hart at WCW's Mayhem 2000 pay-per-view with several of his friends in his corner, including Al Roker Jr., Jim Jesus, and Turd the Bartender. Yep, that's Vince Russo-era WCW for you. Shoutouts to the new Blood Rising podcast. When we come back from commercial, we get another vignette for Edge, and a lot of the footage appears to be reused from some of the previous segments. However, this time they do splice in some shots of him apparently making out with a woman next to some candles, and I can only assume she must be some other wrestler's girlfriend. Our next match is another 6-man tag team match between Generation X and the Nation of Domination, but unlike last night's match which was one fall to the finish, this is actually an elimination match where each wrestler must leave the ring once they have been pinned. Your teams are Triple H and the New Age Outlaws taking on The Rock, Owen Hart, and D-Lo Brown. Before the match commissioner Slaughter comes to the ring and orders each faction member who is not in the match to leave the ringside area, so X-Pac, China Mark Henry, and Kama Mustafa all head backstage. The first elimination of the match actually happens rather quickly as Billy Gunn whipped d off the ropes where Road Dog kicked him in the back and Mr. Ass then picked him up for a jumping pile driver to score the three count. DX3 Nation 2. The next elimination occurred shortly thereafter when Road Dog bounced off the ropes and attempted to clothesline the rock, but instead Rocky blocked it and hit him with a rock bottom to even the score. DX2 Nation 2. The next man out was Billy Gunn, who attempted to splash Owen Hart in the corner, but instead Owen moved, and Mr. Ass hit his head on the ring post. Owen then followed up with a spinning heel kick, and that was enough to eliminate Billy. That means Triple H is the last man left for DX, with The Rock and Owen Hart on the other side. However, as soon as Billy was eliminated, China walked right back down to the ring, and I would love to know why that was allowed. Slaughter specifically ejected China from ringside at the start of the match, so why the hell was she able to just walk right back down to the ring without anyone coming out to get her? Much like Commissioner Gordon, I think Commissioner Slaughter needs a Batman of his own to keep these rebels in line. And sure enough, China would indeed make an impact in this match. The Rock went for a rock bottom, but Triple H escaped and hit him with a pedigree. China then distracted Owen so he wouldn't run into the ring and break up the pinfall, and Hunter then scored the clean three count, meaning we are now down, once again, to Triple H and Owen Hart. However, before the two of them can settle their score, a returning Ken Shamrock runs into the ring and beats the shit out of Owen as payback for Owen snapping his ankle one month prior. Much like Hawk earlier, Shamrock appears to be throwing some really stiff punches at Owen, which would not be too far out of character for the world's most dangerous man. The Nation of Domination then returns to help out Owen, and they overwhelm Shamrock, but then... a suit-wearing Dan the Beast Severn comes to the ring to help out his former UFC opponent. Shamrock and Severn clear the ring and then awesomely stare each other down, with Severn then walking backstage. Tony Chimmel then announces that Owen Hart is the winner of the match due to outside interference, which causes an angry Triple H to re-enter the ring and shove Shamrock. The two of them then start brawling on the canvas, with a bunch of referees quickly running to the ring to attempt to keep them apart. Strangely, it seems like the point of this ending was to give Ken Shamrock about 15,000 feuds all at the same time. He attacks Owen to avenge the beatdown from last month, Then he brawls with The Nation, then he and Dan Severn stare each other down, then he brawls with Triple H. Frankly, I think Ken just needs a friend. We then go backstage where we see Vince McMahon in the locker room talking with Paul Bearer and Kane. We don't hear the audio, but we see Vince extend a hand to Kane. Bearer tells Kane to shake Vince's hand, and Kane seems confused, but he actually does it. Jim Ross then gets in a good line when he says that Vince is making a deal with the devil, or is it the other way around? We then go back to the arena, where greatest character ever, Tennessee Lee, introduces Jeff Jarrett, who gets his customary spinny pyro, which says JJ. Tennessee Lee then tells us that the people of Chicago and the people up north in the WWF offices don't know how to respect a southern gentleman like Double J, so he introduces us to a couple of men he calls Southern Justice. Sure enough, Henry and Phineas Godwin then emerge from backstage, but instead of being dressed in their customary overalls with Confederate flag t-shirts they are now wearing business suits. Also, as a fun side note, the theme song they enter to is actually the same theme that Jeff Jarrett will ultimately end up using as his own once, spoiler alert, he eventually drops the country singer gimmick. But now, on to our next match, another King of the Ring qualifier, Jeff Jarrett versus Farouk. The match was pretty lackluster, and as you might expect, Southern Justice helped Double J pick up the victory. After Farouk hit Jarrett with a moderately botched spine buster, the ex-Godwins jumped up on the ring apron to distract the referee, which enabled Tennessee Lee to toss a belt into the ring. Not a title belt, just a regular belt. Jarrett hit Farouk in the face with the belt buckle, and once the ref turned back around, he scored the three count and advanced in the tournament, where he will now have to face Mark Merrow. As a side note, my how far Farouk has fallen. A few months ago, he was the leader of a major stable, and now he can't even win a King of the Ring qualifier. In fairness, though, it makes sense, because right now he is a terrible, terrible wrestler. We then cut to a rather strange pre-taped segment which talks about how legitimately charitable Vince McMahon is, including mentioning the fact that he contributes significantly to the Special Olympics and the Boys and Girls Clubs. Really strange for them to air this, especially given the fact that they're trying to make Vince out to be the biggest heel in the universe right now. I mean, good for him for being so charitable, but why you gotta go and break KFABE WWF? Come on. Our next match is a WWF Light Heavyweight Championship match champion Taka Michinoku, accompanied by Bradshaw, versus his Kaientai rival Funaki, who is accompanied by Dick Togo, Men's Teo, and Yamaguchi san. During the match, Al Snow and Head come to the ring, dressed as offensive Asian stereotypes, including a conical hat, a kimono, and a camera around his neck. Yes, several people had to give that idea a thumbs up, and apparently no one said, what the hell is wrong with you? As for the match itself, it was pretty brief, and Taka cleanly retained his title, when Funaki missed a top rope elbow drop, and Taka then hit him with a dropkick and a Michinoku driver to pick up the victory. Taka has now beaten every member of Kai and Tai cleanly, except for Teo, so I'm guessing that will be on next week's card. After a commercial break, we cut backstage where Al Snow is yelling at Head, and because the WWF wasn't content to have only one segment making fun of Japanese people, Snow mentions that Head has apparently told him that he enjoys Egg Foo Young. Bravo, Vince Russo. Our next match is our third King of the Ring qualifying match of the night, Terry Funk versus Mark Henry. Vince McMahon has actually joined the commentary team during this match because he wants to be at ringside for the upcoming main event, but sadly he does not bust out his classic what-a-maneuver line for old times' sake. The highlight of this match was Terry Funk climbing to the second rope and doing a moonsault onto Mark Henry on the floor. However, Funk flipped a little bit too far, and Henry didn't catch him, so Funk ended up landing hip-first right on top of the old-school steel barricade. Fucking ouch. Back in the ring, Henry hit Funk with a powerbomb, then followed it up with a big splash to score the three count, even though it looked like Funk was attempting to kick out as the pinfall was happening. That means we are now 3-for-3 on heels advancing in the King of the Ring tournament tonight. The lesson here is clearly that appealing to the fans makes you a real loser. After a commercial break, WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin heads to the ring, much to the dismay of Vince McMahon. Stone Cold actually sits down at the other end of the commentary table, with Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler sitting between Austin and Vince. As if the main event couldn't possibly be more entertaining, we now get dueling Austin-Vince commentaries. Good stuff. And now it is time for that aforementioned main event to determine who will face Stone Cold Steve Austin for the WWF title at King of the Ring, The Undertaker vs. Kane. First of all, I'm happy to report that The Undertaker has changed out of his sweatpants and he is now wearing his customary ring gear, so thank goodness for that. Shortly after the match begins, Taker quickly ducks outside of the ring and punches Paul Bearer in the face, which I suppose is fair since he called Taker's mom a whore. At this point, I have to quickly mention another brilliant sign in the crowd. Someone held up one which said, blah blah ass and then a hyphen with Steve Austin's name next to it as though it was a quote attributed to Stone Cold. Right as that fan held up that sign... Austin, on commentary, said that he would gladly beat Kane's ass, so clearly, that fan is a genius. Back to the match, and I have to say that I thought this was actually really enjoyable. These two were having a very good one-on-one match before we got to the inevitable schmozzy finish. Toward the end of the match, we had an accidental ref bump, as The Undertaker whipped Kane into the corner where Mike Kyoto was standing. Taker then picked Kane up and hit him with a tombstone, but there was no ref to count the pinfall. And then... Who should run down to the ring, but none other than mankind dressed in a red shirt and his usual mask? he surprisingly puts the mandible claw on the undertaker for a little while before taker boots him to the floor on commentary, Vince McMahon says that he fired McFoley and he has no idea why he's out there right now, but he has a smile on his face as he says it. Mankind jumps back up on the ring apron and taker punches him off, but that gives Kane an opening to pick Taker up and hit him with a tombstone. The referee recovers shortly thereafter and counts to three, meaning that your new number one contender for the WWF title is none other than Kane. As soon as the match ends, Vince tells Austin he's looking forward to Kane beating his ass at the King of the Ring, and it appears that this may have been Vince's plan all along. Kane then walks over to Austin and does the belt-around-my-waist gesture before lighting the posts on fire and heading backstage. Back in the ring, The Undertaker recovers and immediately begins brawling with Mankind, who Jim Ross speculates has reunited with Paul Bearer. We go off the air with both men still brawling on the arena floor, as JR says they will have to settle this feud in hell. You may want to remember that line, because it's going to come into play in the coming weeks. Certainly there's a lot more to discuss here, but for now, let's go to the wrap-up.
0: Yo, I slayed them seas back in the rec room era My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror I freak beat, slam it like Iron Sheik We dedicated the cast that's been thugging Vinny passed, got more hoes than Jim Duggan I'm uh, bananas, out of my fucking mind They won't let me back in Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rose and Bob Backlund Bruno San Martino, Stan Stagiac Now the rock and stone cold on my favorite maniac The top rooster to plucking, chickens when they clucking
1: With WWF stands for where we fuck the Ratings Recap Last week, the Monday Night War ended in a tie as Raw and Nitro each scored a 4.2 rating. Did Raw score a ratings bump for their post-over-the-edge live episode this week? The answer is yes, but not much of one. Raw slightly increased to a 4.35 rating, but that was more than enough to beat WCW, which dropped half a point down to a 3.72 rating. And of course, for comparison's sake, here's what you could have been watching on Nitro. Ernest the Cat Miller defeated Jerry Flynn, not Jerry Lynn. Raven and Perry Saturn defeated The Public Enemy. Alex Wright defeated Chavo Guerrero. Conan defeated Lenny Lane. Fit Finley defeated Eddie Guerrero by disqualification to retain his world television title. Chris Jericho defeated Juventud Guerrero, which of course means that I am obligated to play The Rock's soundbite where he mocks Jericho's choice of WCW opponents.
2: You think you impress the Rock? You think you impress the Rock? Why? Because a couple of months ago, you were down south beating some jabroni named
1: Hooventude? Chris Benoit defeated Booker T to take a 3-1 lead in their best-of-seven series. Diamond Dallas Page defeated Riggs. Goldberg defeated LaParka to retain his United States Heavyweight Championship, and incidentally, you might want to take a look at this match because it only lasts about 30 seconds and includes LaParka giving Goldberg a stiff chair shot to the skull, which he completely no-sells before hitting him with a spear and a jackhammer for the victory. Fun stuff. And in your main event, NWO Wolfpack members Kevin Nash and Lex Luger defeated NWO Black and White members Hollywood Hogan And the giant by disqualification. And on the note of that main event, the big storyline throughout this episode of Nitro was which side would Sting end up joining? WCW, Hulk Hogan's NWO Black and White, or Kevin Nash's NWO Wolfpack? Well, we got our answer after the main event concluded as Sting rappelled down from the rafters. He entered the ring wearing his customary black jacket, which he then unzipped to show us whose side he was on. Let's take a listen.
0: Decision time here. Let's see what he's got on. He's got an MW up. He's got on the block of the white. Uh, My God, he's got on the block of the white.
1: And look at Hogan celebrate. Oh, I thought I'd never see this. Sting, Hogan, Hogan.
0: Oh. No, he's got Sting, Dick, Hogan. Sting is going to strike the job. The 513 pounds of the giant. Hold on. He's getting rid of that black and white right now. Sting takes off. Sting, Sting got. He's got the red and the black. Sting. He's going Nash. He's with the black and red. There's no doubt about that now. Sting is on the wolf's backside.
1: Is a member of the Wolfpack. In case you were wondering what was up with that long pause in the middle of the clip, it was because Sting was having a hell of a time trying to tear off his black and white shirt to reveal the Wolfpack shirt underneath. It literally took him about 13 seconds to fully remove the entire thing, which is made all the more perplexing since he had just slammed the big show a few seconds prior. Maybe he should have joined the black and white after all, so Hogan could show him how to easily tear off a t-shirt. But anyway, there you have it. Sting, who has spent the better part of two years fighting the NWO, has now joined one of its factions. This is pretty much the official end of silent, brooding Crow Sting, as he will now begin to abandon his black and white face paint and return to cutting promos. Your mileage may vary as to whether or not you think this was a good idea. I know it's a very divisive topic among wrestling fans, so feel free to let us know your opinion, even though this is technically a WWF podcast. And on that note, let's go to... The Raw Synopsis. I thought this was a really good episode of Raw, and unlike most episodes of the show lately, it was actually pretty heavy on the wrestling content, with eight official matches on a two-hour card. Not only that, but two of the matches were actually quite good, specifically the DX Nation match and the Undertaker Kane match, both being very enjoyable. As for the angles on the show, as I mentioned earlier, much of it revolved around the gradually increasing insanity of Vince McMahon, but that was okay in this instance because Vince was incredibly entertaining in all of his segments. Not only that, but the parade of debuts continued as Jacqueline made her first WWF appearance and Southern Justice were also introduced to the world. Plus, they did a great job building up some new rivalries for the next pay-per-view, and add in the fact that I'm a total mark for the old-school King of the Ring tournament, and all in all, I would say this episode of Raw gets a big thumbs up from me. Definitely give it a look if you get the chance. And with that, we can wrap things up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes, because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I leave you now with the clip of Vince McMahon being confronted by a man who, by the time you listen to this podcast, could be the new president of the United States. In this clip, that man is once again bragging about his genitals, but Jerry the King Lawler then upstages him on commentary. So enjoy that, and I will catch you next time.
2: First of all, Vince, your grapefruits
0: are no match for my Trump Towers.
2: (laughs) Oh, man.
0: There's two of them.